Hello and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews that we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Brent Braun. We're at OK Omens in Castagna in Portland. It's January 11th, 2021. Brent, thanks so much for joining us today. Of course, my pleasure. Uh, first question, most important question, why wine? <laughs> um, well, I, I majored in history when I was in college, got out of college and was really just kind of exploring, um, playing music, traveling, doing you know everything I wanted at 23 years old, and drinking a lot of wine. But drinking uh, whatever I could afford. I went to school in uh, UC Santa Cruz, and that was in the days of like two buck chuck being actually a um, dollar ninety nine at Trader Joe's. And so, in college, we like lived off that stuff, and um, it turned into a whole like, okay, let's try every. 299 bottle every 399 bottle and trying to be like what's what's good about it and I mean trying to suss out anything from those bottles is nearly impossible but it was fun and it really was just kind of a one day being like you know if I'm gonna be drinking this much wine maybe I should learn about what any of these words means uh, and I picked up wine for dummies actually which I still have that copy that I picked up um, and I just immediately was like this is amazing um, I think coming off of a, a history major, I was used to you know thinking in those kind of terms, mm-hmm. and it just felt like an extension of school in a way which I was comfortable with, except there was such a clear payoff at the end because you got to drink something and um, and uh, yeah. So you mentioned UC Santa Cruz. Tell me a little bit about your kind of upbringing background before before wine. Um, yeah, I mean. Nothing, like I didn't have any real exposure to wine growing up at all. Um, my parents are both big wine drinkers now, which happened to totally, uh, you know, separately from me getting into wine. Uh, it was just a coincidence. But growing up, they didn't drink wine, really. Um, it was really, like, my exposure to wine, to wine was really just, honestly, the Charles, Charles Shaw, the, the cheap wine thing. And it was kind of a, at UC Santa Cruz, which is kind of a, you know, a, Counterculture university as it is. There's no real frat and sorority system. Um, the college is fairly decentralized, and so it 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 has a different feel than most university cities do. Um, it was drinking cheap wine was kind of like what the cool kids did. You know, it's what all the artists and musicians uh, and uh, hipster kids did, um, as opposed to drinking cheap beer. And so that was really like my gateway into just wine as a as a thing to consume. Mm-hmm. My parents don't have, they, they had never been to Europe uh, until recently we've gone together. And so there was no kind of uh, like European traditions in the way we like ate or drank or anything like that. It was a very like, my mom's Japanese. Um, and so in a way a very like kind of classic 80s American upbringing. Um, I can relate. Yeah. <laughs> So you mentioned wine for dummies, and, and this just kind of like sparking. Do you remember? Do you have a, a recollection of of what it was that interested you about about the topic of wine, or as opposed to the beverage of wine? Yeah, I think um, again, like having a clear 
something that has a clear historical, uh, um, that's the word I'm looking for, uh, a clear history to it, is really interesting. You pick up that book right away and you can learn a lot about how things got from point A to point you know, Z mm -hmm. um, in a somewhat kind of linear fashion. And the more you start learning about you know, modern wine culture, you realize that it is completely to be beholden to what came right before that and what came right before that and what came right before that. And the way that film is and the way that music and art always build upon each other, um, these things don't exist in vacuums. And with wine, it's really easy to trace that. You can know what producer came up working for this producer who came up working for this producer. Um, and the cool thing is, is you can taste those wines all along the way. Obviously, it's harder to taste, you know, wines as the older they get, but you could, they can be found and um, you can trace those stylistic similarities. Um, and the longer you're in the wine industry, the more you see producers who are seemingly new producers, but you find out that they worked for this person and were inspired by them. And again, you can like trace those, mm -hmm. those uh, thread lines. And that's part of what's exciting about uh, history is how much it informs the present. So tell me about the process of learning wine then. You mentioned not having a lot of money, not, having, not being able to just go out and just buy any wine you want, mm -hmm. wanted to. So tell me about developing your palate, developing your knowledge, um, and kind of how, how the process went for you. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was, uh, it was really fun. Uh, it was hard. Uh, and it's, when I look back, I laugh at some of the things I was trying to do. Um, I, I was working in restaurants. Um, I didn't care about food either. Uh, this was before, I mean, I cared about food as far as you know, eating and stuff, but um, <laughs> just sustenance. But um, I was working at Macaroni Grill downtown when I moved here. And I also moved here like right in the middle of the recession. Um, this is back in the days when like, for any of us who were people who were here during that, if there was a, um, uh, position available at a restaurant, there'd be a line around the block of people waiting to drop off resumes. I mean, it was cutthroat. And I was a 23-year-old kid with basically almost no restaurant experience. And so um, the fact that I was able to get into Macaroni Grill, which again, not a very high quality corporate place, but busy, I was like, I was like, this is great. I can pay my bills and like, I don't have to move home, which in that recession, when the economy fell apart, if you graduated when I did, I graduated right in June of 08. The economy fell apart in September and my, basically what would have been my first like, you know, fall into the modern economy. Um, everyone just moved home, because mm -hmm. what can you do? Um, but, you know, with a job waiting tables, you can pay rent, especially if you're in somewhere like Portland when back then you could you know, get a room in a, an apartment for 400 bucks or whatever. And so, um, you know, I... I had started getting into wine. I was still working at this restaurant and I was like, I should find a wine bar around here or something. Maybe like when I get off, I can go there and like start asking them questions or maybe even get a job at a place like that. And I ended up, um, I would work doubles all the time. Um, and I would walk down to the waterfront. Uh, there used to be a little wine bar there called Thirst. Uh, very much focused on tourism as the waterfront kind of is, um, but it was all Pacific Northwest. That was the focus. There wasn't a European wine uh, in the building. And I used to go for like my like lunch break and uh, sit at the bar with um, a guy named Charlie who actually runs uh, Blue Truck Produce now. He's become a, a produce broker. And I'd make him blind taste me on whatever he could, but I mean, it was like being blind tasted on like Washington Grenache and stuff that there's like no way to really feasibly call that. But like, I thought it was so exciting to try to like get my head around what was going on there. And so I would go there all the time and then um, my first apartment was right across from Portland Wine Merchants. Um, kind of old school, old school uh, 
wine shop and I would go there on the Friday night tastings and try to like, you know, just understand anything I could and um, yeah, kind of just trying to piece it together. Yeah, I would buy, I was buying like wine spectators because that seemed like the magazine. Mm -hmm. It's the shiniest and the biggest, so it seemed like it must be the one. And you know, scrounging through the back and trying to find the value picks that had like 94 points and you know, it'd be like a Columbia Winery and Peter Lehman Shiraz and not Lehman, uh, Peter something, whatever. Um, yeah, Peter Lehman, I think, is the Shiraz producer. Right. And, and all these, like, you know, wine specters filled with those kind of, like, high to low, or, like, low to mid-90s wines that are all under 15, 16 bucks. And I try to find any of them, because I could, like, that would be a splurge, 15, 16 bucks. But I was, like, for 94 points, like, um, and I remember it was actually that Peter Lehman, uh, Australian Shiraz, that was, like, one of the first kind of, like, I really loved it, because I actually thought I could understand what what I was tasting uh, and what they were describing because I mean they're just so big and in your face that you're just like oh my god I do I get the licorice and the cherry like okay I'm doing this right um, <laughs> and it says it's 94 points so I mean like it must be good um, and so like Australian Shiraz was really like one of my first like I can do this um, but again kind of just trying to like hustle value from wherever I could by you know finding deals like that and um, eventually kind of, you know, schmooze my way into a job at both those places, um, which meant that at the wine shop, at the wine merchants, I could buy wholesale, which was huge because, I mean, that just seemed like the greatest thing that could ever happen. Um, and then the wine bar allowed a little bit more professional service experience and experience with, like, how wine service works and um, how to run it and how a small business works. Um, especially coming from corporate giant restaurants where like the machine is so big you don't as a server at a place like that at 23 years old you're not thinking about like how does this place run what do numbers mean like what do we do to exist mm -hmm. like it blew my mind when I got a job at the wine bar and Gary the owner um, would go to he would go do pickups every day at cash and carry and here and there and I was just like this is crazy this is how we get our stuff like where's the big truck that like unloads everything into the back like um, yeah that's awesome so I want to back up for just a second before we talk more about wine. I'm curious, I know you have a musical background as well. Mm -hmm. You mentioned music at, at Santa Cruz. So tell me about, is that what brought you to Portland? It is, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, I play piano, play keys, singer-songwriter kind of arena of things. And I was playing music in Santa Cruz. And uh, again, leaving college, I knew that I didn't want to jump right into the job market back when I thought there was gonna be a job market. Um, I kind of thought, you know, let me go move to a city, have some fun, play music, do that for a while, meet a bunch of people, see how that goes, knowing that like, you know, the chances for any kind of success as a kind of, we'll call it like pop rock musician or whatever is so low, but I was like, it'll be fun. It'll be a great way to live my early 20s and I'll just go back and get a uh, master's in, um, or PhD in history and then figure it out from there. Obviously none of that like path happened. Um, but I, yeah, uh, when the economy fell apart, um, the Bay Area, which is where I was headed, became no longer feasible. I was like, there's just no way I should move there. Um, and so I actually ended up moving to uh, uh, London for, um, I don't know, six months or so. I was able to get a permit to go work over there, um, kind of reset, um, and then moved 
Portland. I'd actually never uh, been to Portland either. I'd been as a kid, maybe. Um, but uh, I had a friend up here, and it just kind of, I'd heard it was a great place to go. I'd heard it felt kind of like a grown-up, bigger Santa Cruz. <laughs> the music scene at the time was, um, was really well kind of established. Um, and so, yeah, I ended up here. Did you have a part in the music scene while you were up here? I did, yeah. For the first five or six years or so while I was here, um, that's kind of mostly what I did. Um, I played all over town a lot, as much as I could. A couple different projects. Um, it just was my it was my community for the first couple years here. You know, you you get to know everyone. It's such a small city in a lot of ways um, that people who are playing in even different scenes. You know, I was playing in, in kind of electronic electro clash electro pop um, kind of post-punk outfits but you're still like you still get paired up with shows with all kinds of different bands and play house parties with different bands and I, and I loved it it was really fun and you know I was doing that and working restaurants to pay bills um, and kind of was like you know I'll just I started getting into wine I was like I'm just gonna kind of do both these things until one of them just kind of usurps the other that's, it started becoming problematic really early on because you can't really work Friday, Saturday nights um, at a restaurant if you're playing shows mm -hmm. all the time. Mm -hmm. um, and even practicing, I mean, we would practice at nights too. And so I was working, I worked wine shops and distribution and kind of basically various odds and ends for years just because I couldn't really commit to um, restaurant work, which is where the good money was at. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and then wine eventually uh, took over. Tell me about that. I'm, I'm curious about that. At what, what point did wine become something you thought of as more than just a hobby? Yeah, I mean, I knew that it was something I was, I knew it was going to be a career. Um, I had, like, gone through some of the traditional avenues as far as, like, getting certified um, through the Court of Masters back when um, that felt like the thing you had to do. And this is actually before, this was before, like, the Psalm movie came out, too. And so there was a lot less, um, it was a lot less obvious to go do that than it became after that film kind of, you know, blew the doors open. And um, and so I went and did that and um, was working at a wine shop that's still around called Blackbird Wine Shop. Um, it's up on Fremont. A little, like, quirky wine shop. Andy Diaz, the owner, I love. He, we kind of share a... Um, this belief in uh, infusing a lot of irreverence into uh, wine. And um, it was just this funny situation. I'd gotten certified even though I'd actually barely, I'd never even worked in fine dining, but the court, you can kind of like squirm your way through really if you, if you do things um, right. My technical knowledge was really, really strong. And I remember actually during the uh, testing, um, the, the test part, I was like, this is easy. It's multiple choice. Um, blind tasting, I was like, eh, okay. And the service part was just a mess. I mean, I was actually faking it. Like, again, Macaroni Girl was the nicest restaurant I'd worked at. And you're sitting like with a master, so I'm giving them like fake service. Um, and uh, they passed me, which I could not believe they passed me. Like, I, I, there was just things, like I was rubbing my hands, I guess, on my like pan, just like things you're not <laughs> supposed to do. Um, and my like review at the end said something like, um, basically passing me uh, because of my theoretical knowledge despite my like complete utter lack of like practical knowledge of how to do things. Um, and so anyways, I, I ended up uh, working at this wine shop up there. I loved it and it coincided with Andy, the owner, um, taking on a second space downtown that was kind of ill-fated. But um, he just kind of trusted me right away and he basically trained me for a day or two on like how he wants things done there and then he just like left. 
and like went to go open his new place and all of a sudden I was like oh, I guess I'm the buyer of this wine shop now <laughs> like I'd never been a buyer before like um, and I learned so much so quickly a lot of it from my reps um, and a lot of those reps who I still have really long-standing relationships with um, and I was tasting you know four or five hours every single day because we essentially would do cattle call um, from you know noon until two or three or whatever I'd just be there and whoever wanted to show up could show up um, my teeth hurt like all the time like it was actual like enamel stripping and it was a lot of really uh, cheap wine because with a retail shop like that you know you are trying to hunt down your the best you know wines under 10 11 dollars wholesale and so you're trying so much wine and so much mediocre and bad wine but um I uh, really was enjoying myself there um, and I kind of envisioned, I was able to play music all the time still since I had nights off and I envisioned, you know, being a psalm, working in a restaurant someday, it seemed so like glamorous. <laughs> um, Nicholas Sahor, who is uh, you know, the GM at um, Nostrana and one of Portland's, you know, one of, one of the great wine directors when he was one. Um, and, he, and he's a friend now, he's one of the great, great regulars here. But um, I, I looked up to him because I would uh, run into him at my local coffee shop and the fact that he was like young and cool and like a sommelier of this big restaurant, I was like, it's the craziest thing ever. Like, I, I want to be like that. Um, and I figured it was something I'd do like in my 30s or like mid 30s. Um, but um, a restaurant called Levant, which is no longer around, opened. Um, it's where Tusk is, or it, it is where Tusk, yeah. Um, and um, a close friend of mine got offered the job as a GM and wine director, and he was like, I don't want, that's, a, that's like a 100 hour a week job, like, no way. Um, it was, uh, Scott, the owner, wanted it to be a fairly ambitious wine program. Mm -hmm. And it, he told Scott, he was like, listen, if you hire Brent, um, you should go find Brent and we can do it together then. Um, and so I sat down with him, he came in and watched kind of, we, we would do a little bit of like a wine bar tasting service every night. He watched how that happened, how I talked with guests and everything and he was kind of like, yeah, like uh, this is, this sounds good, I want, I, let's do it. Um, and so me and, it was Christopher Sky was my friend who's uh, still a psalm around town, um, a winemaker now actually. Um, yeah, teamed up and kind of opened this place on the front of house, doing everything on the front of house GM side and building this wine program, which for both of us, it was our first wine program to build. Um, again, for me, having barely worked at restaurants, and then all of a sudden I was a, essentially an assistant GM being like, I don't know what I'm doing here at all. Like, I can do the wine thing, but like everything else, like <clears throat> I was often deferring to servers because we had an experienced service staff about, they'd ask me things about service, and I'm like, you know I don't have any clue what's going on. Like, what do you think we should do? I don't know. But um, we built a really, really fun list. And, um, and, and basically, kind of, kind of to jump back to the question, um, yeah, he, he will essentially doubled what I was making at the wine shop and I was like well I guess uh, this isn't what I really wanted to do for a few years but like I didn't want to pass that opportunity up to build a list from scratch and to move, move out of uh, poverty <laughs> and then once that happened of course as you can imagine opening a brand new restaurant at that capacity I mean just was a time suck in sure. every way um, physically and emotionally and so music went on the back burner basically um, at any kind of like uh, it, I mean, forever. I still play, but like, I don't, yeah. True, true. 
So tell me about building that first list. And, and, and you obviously, you mentioned a lot of theoretical knowledge, a lot of book knowledge, a lot of tasting at that point, but not a lot of, not any experience doing anything like this where you're building a list for a restaurant. So tell me about how it came together. You have all these different people's visions involved. So how does a wine list come out of that? And what was, what, what did you learn from it? You know, it, it, it was a pretty like seamless, easy process actually. Um, Christopher had worked in so many great restaurants in Portland. Um, and Portland is, again, small enough that you can kind of, you can study everybody's wine list and see, like, uh, how do people work with the balance of this versus that? Like, what are they, who are they appealing to? Um, and with that year of buying experience at Blackbird, I did at least understand, like, A, the mechanisms of buying and organizing and spreadsheets and everything, but also filling niches, understanding what people want, understanding, you know, you can't just have this and this and this and this. Um, there was probably a little bit of like um, obvious, there was probably some like obvious picks on the menu, but I mean, I, was, I always was leaning esoteric from the time I started with wine. The, the, the idea of natural wine wasn't really a thing in Portland yet. Um, I mean, you had some like very progressive up and coming mm -hmm. wine director, wine people, um, Star Black, who is no longer with us was kind of like leading that pack in my mind, along with Dana Frank, obviously doing amazing work. Austin was already doing really great things at DOC. So I mean, I mean Andy, I mean all the people that we still know, like they were already as Nicholas, as I said, were established doing these amazing things. So I was able to like look at their lists and look at what they're doing, and I didn't know I think any of them personally at that point, um, and kind of be like, okay, like, you know. The, the coolest things they're doing are working with these esoteric producers, these smaller producers, these producers who are uh, more in touch with the land, more integrity driven. And so even at Blackbird, I was beginning to lean in that direction. And so I built a list in that fashion, which um, it wasn't at that point a guiding principle of how I was operating, but it was definitely um, important for me. And it led us to build this um, list that was really heavily focused also on uh, Greek wines, um, and there was some really interesting things being brought into the city from really high integrity producers, and we were able to work with those and kind of highlight those wines, which was really fun. What was the, re the response to, the, to that kind of list, to a more esoteric list? Was, was it something that you found that consumers were excited about? It was hard. Um, I mean, Portland can be hard in some ways. It's, it's still more of a cocktail city. And back then, even more so, I mean, this is also when it was like very much a beer city. <laughs> and um, the list was hard for people to navigate. We sold a lot of wine, but not as much wine as we thought we would. Scott the Chef had also come from San Francisco where a much, much more um, sophisticated wine drinking culture. And so we built this huge program, but um, the, much more focus went to the cocktails as far as what consumers wanted. We had an amazing cocktail program too. Um, but um, people still, like, we did sell a lot of the Greek, the Greek stuff, the Israeli stuff. People were drawn to that, for mm -hmm. sure. I think, like, a lot of the other core lists, we built a very classic, big, big list. But, but people didn't want that stuff. You know, if they were there, they wanted, if they were going to drink wine, they wanted to drink these, this section of things they'd never seen before. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So I'm curious about your your role then as someone directly working with the consumers at that point and trying to educate them on this list of wines they've never seen before. How did you go about it? What were the strategies you used to kind of introduce people to a wine they may have never heard of or, or tried? Um, a lot of it was, you know, a kind of a proto version of what I ended up developing here, which is um, 
demystifying it and talking a lot about you know what they're getting into and what the wine's going to mean for them and be for them um, without trying to get into the specifics of the things that they're not going to care about. Um, you know, I, I think the average consumer coming in and looking for wine doesn't really care that much about hearing about terroir. It doesn't mean anything to them. Um, if it's a really specific thing, like, you know, it's grown on a volcanic island and the soils are black, I mean, maybe that can become some kind of, like, mental registration. But for the most part, I think when you start talking too much about, like, soil types and, and certain things like that, you're just going right over people's heads. Um, what they want to know is, What's it going to taste like? Is it going to be delicious? And is it going to fit some idea of what I'm looking for? Which, you know, if you're like, are you looking for, okay, white, lighter, brighter, heavier, you know, like, is it going to be in that spectrum they say they want? What's it going to taste like? And then why should they care? And I think most consumers tend to care more about the people behind the projects than they do about um, the soil underneath those people's feet, for better or worse. Um, but if you can get them in the door and they love the wine, then you can maybe start having a conversation about, you know, how it's made or why that piece of land matters. But I don't know if that helps people uh, make that a decision initially. You talk about the people, and obviously that's a, that's a pretty common theme in our interviews, is the people are interested in the people making the wine. We're, of course, some of those people are interested in those people. Mm -hmm. uh, tell me about the, that note for you, getting to know the stories and, and what you found people responded to when they were buying wines. What kind of stories, what kind of people were the ones that people, that your customers, like migrated toward. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, I want to say back then, it wasn't that long ago. But I mean, the, the wine world was a really different place six years ago than it, seven, God, eight years ago, <laughs> Jesus Christ, uh, than it is now. Uh, the natural wine world has completely flipped the wine world on its head. And so I think back then, just the idea that there were small families behind these wines was still really interesting that just that alone was really interesting mm -hmm. to a lot of people because you know at that point majority of wine was still bought at grocery stores which it probably still is but i mean it was a totally different back then mm -hmm. and even a lot of your bigger name wines were about they were about branding they weren't about people all your big napa wines a lot of your famous traditional houses in france and spain it was never it was so rarely about the person again it was about the brand mm -hmm. it's a bordeaux it's a second growth or it's a rioja it's a grand reserve you know not about like who are who is this family and the son took over and or this pioneer who found these old vines you know that story wasn't as um, common for people to hear and so um the idea of a lot of these winemakers as um, just kind of starting a revolution in a way about we think about wine um, and being very passionate. I think people liked hearing those stories. You've talked about natural wine a couple of times and obviously how much of that has changed just in the last few years. How, without jumping ahead too much in your story here, how much has that changed your role and your perspective on, on wine? How much has that changed what you do, what you look for in wine? You know, there's an ebb and flow. I mean, it's, a, it's such a big conversation getting into like the natural wine conversation. Um, but I will say, you know, I always, as I was saying, I was always leaning in the direction of these smaller producers who are doing more interesting things, experimenting a bit more. Um, again, I think of these producers working with a lot, very integrity driven, very intentional in what they're trying to do. Um, and a lot of you know these producers again working uh, and working without manipulations, which mm -hmm. um, and working as stewards of the land. Um, 
whether certified or not, and whether biodynamic or just organic, you know, but like really paying attention and thinking about their land and thinking about um, the health of their soils and thinking about regenerative agriculture. And, um, and so I was always drawn to those producers. Um, I wasn't, you know, looking for, but I was, I was in a way somewhat classically trained as far as like going through the court and, and this and that. And so I, I wasn't like looking for really fucked up wines. Um, and I didn't start off by drinking wines that are, you know, off the rails as far as acetic acids and things and being like, wow, this tastes like sour beer. I like it, which there's nothing wrong with. I don't, I'm, I'm happy for anyone to get into wine through whatever avenue they want. Um, but I actually came up fairly classically, drinking classics and then, but being drawn to the classics that I found that had more character and soul. And a lot of those ended up being very, um, producers that we now look at as like the giants of the pre-natural wine movement, um, producers who were always working on a small scale with a lot of integrity, um, but we just didn't call them that back then. I mean, at least in Portland, maybe in more sophisticated markets, they were, like, they were I'm sure they were on that already. It wasn't that long ago, but, um, and so, um, yeah, so nothing has changed too much as far as like continuing to work with those producers. And even with, um, when I opened Omens, the idea was still mostly to highlight that avenue of, of natural wine, was to kind of, you know, make a clear point that natural wine, which is essentially definitionless, does not inherently mean wines that are filled with flaws. And just because most people, so many uh, natural wine drinkers, they come to wine by tasting flawed wines and that would, that's what gets them in the door. Mm -hmm. um, it's nice for them to know that there are other but that's not what natural wine means. It doesn't mean it tastes a certain way. Mm -hmm. um, it's about the production behind it. And so, you know, if you look around at the selection here on this list at any given point, um, most of the wines we pour have a lot of purity to them, have a lot of freshness. They might be wild, but they're usually, again, not horribly flawed. They usually still show some sense of place um, and feel like a wine of intention in some way. Um, not just loose experiments that are <laughs> just floating in the wind. So you mentioned OK Omens, where, where we are now, and, and, and your neighboring restaurant, Kastani. Tell me about the process of, of getting here then. What, what, mm -hmm. At what point does this become the next step in your story? Uh, yeah, so Levant, um, you know, we had, a, we had a fun run there for two years. I think they were open for four. Um, I did do the wine program the whole time. Christopher left pretty early on. Um, and. Uh, it, which was fun for me because he kind of, you know, I got the training wheels with him and then got to take the training wheels off and be like, okay, now I'm doing this on my own. Um, and um, really just through kind of connections and word of mouth at a certain point, um, Castagna needed a wine director. Um, it was, you know, the old sous chef of Levant who me and him had really clicked as far as our passion um, and our, the way we wanted to kind of speak to people and get people engaged and make them care about what we cared about. Mm -hmm. um, he had come back to Castagna to be the sous chef at Castagna. And, and again, for context, back in 2013 or so, um, as far as there were, there were so, uh, so few tasting menus in this city and nothing like Castagna. I mean, it was the top of the top as far as that kind of idea of multi-course dining. And this is when, you know, kind of Spanish molecular gastronomy and, and early stage, like kind of Noma was infusing American culture and we were obsessed with that kind of idea. And so that was, that's like the dream job I thought for a Psalm. Um, before I got even close to sniffing that job, it's like the dream job as a Psalm would be to work for a 20 course tasting menu where you actually get to, 
you know, flex one of your biggest muscles, which is food pairing. And food pairing at a detailed level, dish after dish mm -hmm. after dish after dish after dish after dish. Um, and working with the greatest wines in the world, because you're supposed to be working with some of the greatest cuisine in the world. Um, and um, I just got lucky, basically. And he, again, here, was here as a sous chef, and um, they were ready to transition to having a uh, psalm work on the floor, essentially. Um, Erica Landon of Walter Scott, mm -hmm. who I love, and love their wines, had been uh, consulting on the list for a few years and doing about as good a job as you can possibly do as a consultant, though, for a tasting menu. Mm -hmm. You know, it's really hard. I mean, how can you, how can you, at some level, when there's that many dishes and it's changing that much, like, you can only, you can, the ceiling is, is only so high. And she was, I think she was butting up about as high as you possibly can. And I think it was time for them to be like, okay, like, can we break that ceiling with, and Erica at the time was, you know, one of the, and, and still, is a great wine mind and was one of the great psalms in this city and trained so many of us through um uh what was it called it was some other uh, it was some other uh, uh it wasn't the court of masters it was some other uh teaching body that is i not, remember not, but not i also funk. don't remember the name of yeah it. A blank. anyways um and so, um, and they also had a server who had left and the thing about castagna is that no one ever leaves like you have uh i had people when i started there who'd been there one of the women had been there 15 years, the other server had been there 10 years. You know, like people never leave, and so there was never a chance to have a job at Castagna, and it was a perfect intersect of these two things happening, and um, interviewed, and I got the position, and basically, again, had like ended up with what was my dream job in Portland uh, about a decade before I thought I possibly could have sniffed it. Um, and then, again, it was just kind of one of those like upward things as far as, um, the ability to learn mm -hmm. at a level like that. I mean, A, learn fine dining um, and learn food at a whole new level, but B, really learn how food and wine actually works together. Um, there's no better way than to really, as a uh, you know, wine professional, learn about food and wine pairing than to be doing it at that level every day mm -hmm. um, to really hone down how much texture and balance matter more than flavor, you know, and, and to think about how these things are going to work over the arc of a meal. And it's not just about this with this dish, it's about how's this going to feel three courses later when the palate is, you know, fatigued or not. Mm -hmm. um, and to work with a chef like Justin Ward um, and to be pushed like that for a few years. And so it was, um, and to run a, a, a long list that is, that can be deep and can be deep on classics and deep on old wine and then to taste those old wines all the time. Um, it was an amazing experience um, and an amazing learning experience. Tell me about the, you, you kind of hinted at it a little bit, tell me about the sort of philosophy behind Castagna and tell me about that process for you of learning a tasting philosophy, a wine and food pairing philosophy. How did that come about and how did you learn the kinds of things you talked about in terms of palate fatigue and, 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 and the long form pairing? Ideas. I mean, like, luckily, to go back to Erica, you know, she had set up the, the template was there for when I started. You know, she had her pairings that were set, and so it's like, okay, we, let's start with these. Like, these are here, and they're here for a reason. And, um, and so, you know, I got to work off of those and kind of be like, if these work, you know, what will work after that? Um, and it was really kind of, it's a slow process of, like, trial and error of, um, you know, and, and being really supported, of course, by uh, Monique, who is the owner of Castagna. And, um, and just having 
just tasting dishes all the time and tasting them with wines. And if it's, and then when, if you know that dish is going to be on for two weeks, oftentimes I'd, I'd buy two, three different wines. And sometimes I'd, I'd just open them to try with the dish, even if it doesn't make it on the pairing because, and I would, and it's just notes all the time about why does this one work? Why doesn't this work? And, um, and also I, I had read somewhere early on in some book, I wish I could remember where, about the big thing about wine pairing that everyone messes up is that you have to focus on balance and texture and not on flavor profiles secondary. That's, that's, like, a, that's like the icing on the cake. Um, you know, if you can get a wine that tastes like basil with a dish that has basil, that's great, but that's not important actually at all. It doesn't actually matter at all. It's about balance and it's about structure. It's about how that wine's gonna feel in your mouth, the alcohol, the acidity, um, the weight, the tannin, and how that's going to interact with the dish. Mm -hmm. um, whether it's going to, the acid's going to brighten up that dish and cleanse your palate, whether the acid is, of the dish is going to kind of brighten up the wine, whether that you need the tannin to rip that meat fat off your palate so that the next bite tastes fresh again. Mm -hmm. You know, it's all about textures. Um, and it becomes clearer and clearer, I think, the more you do that and taste every single day. Um, and you know, it was amazing, an amazing opportunity to have, um, to be able to taste wines every day that you don't get to taste at restaurants because the average price for the bottles that we would use on our pairing list over there are the kind of wines that don't get open very often at a normal restaurant. You know, at a normal restaurant, you have your glass pours open every day. And if you're a studious server or younger wine professional, you can taste those glass pours every single day, mm -hmm. every couple days, like really get to know them, see how they evolve and change. But you're talking about a price point that's generally, we'll say, under $20 wholesale for most glass pours. Um, almost every pairing wine we used next door was above $20 wholesale. And so all of a sudden, you're, get, you're getting to work with these special bottles all the time. Um, and also because of the legacy of Castagna, I mean, it was already such a great restaurant and such an important restaurant when I got there, the access to allocated wines we had was unbelievable. And if you get a case of something allocated, it, it, was, it was really clear right away. I was like, well, I don't need a case of this on a long list because we only do, with the nature of what we do next door, you might only do 20 people most nights, 15, 20 people most nights. You don't wanna do, you can't do 100 people, it's, it's impossible. <laughs> And if you only have 15 people, 20 people coming in the door, and maybe one table orders a bottle, but most nights not, you just don't need that much wine on your bottle list. And so your allocated stuff then becomes stuff that you pop open and put on a tasting menu, which is A, a huge value add for your guests that come in, and B, amazing for me and the staff, because we're consistently drinking things that usually, if they get into a wine shop, they vanish right away. Mm -hmm. Things that these days, you put up a picture on Instagram and it's gone immediately and instead for us we'd we'd get to drink it for two weeks it was amazing amazing um I'm, i want to ask one more question about the, the sort of tasting philosophy the pairing i guess pairing mm -hmm. philosophy here um was it was it always fairly straightforward in terms of did you do anything that was out of the ordinary when it came to pairings? Did you did you try to do anything that was different? I don't think I did anything like crazy, but I always tried to mix it up. I tried to make it interesting. One of the, it's, it's so funny because we've been, you know, closed for the entirety of COVID and so it seems like a past life almost because it's been almost, it's, I mean, we're getting pretty close to a year of, yeah. of Castagna being uh, closed for service. Um, and I had also been there so long that like these things were just ingrained that I, I often don't talk about them. But yeah, there was clear philosophies that were built in of like, 
We don't pour boring things. We don't pour obvious pairings. I knew what the classic pairings are supposed to be, right? Um, and oftentimes, um, when you were talking about tasting philosophy, oftentimes you start with that. You taste a dish and you're like, you hear what it is, Justin tells you all about it. You look at it and you're like, this is a Pinot Noir dish, obviously. And then you go, well now what? We're not gonna just pour our favorite organ Pinot Noir with that. It'll be delicious, but that's not what we do. People can do that at home. And so it's either we can find something older. If we can find an older organ Pinot Noir, then there we go. That's something. That's something interesting. If we can find a Pinot Noir from Germany, that's something. That's something people don't get to try. Mm -hmm. Or what else can mimic what we would get from Pinot Noir in some obscure region or grape that people haven't heard of? And so that if you're coming into dinner and that course comes, and if you don't know anything about wine, doesn't matter. You're going to drink it and it's going to work. And that's the most important part. But you're going to be like, wow, that was cool. That was from this little region I've never heard of or this family that's doing something interesting or this group I've never heard of. Um, and the more experienced of a wine drinker you are, the more interested you are by that. Um, because I think, you know, while you might be skeptical at first, being like, why are they pouring this strange, weird thing? Um, if the wine drinks with enough you know, clarity and elegance and it works with that dish, then people are like, oh, this is cool. I wouldn't have thought of this. I would have done a, a burgundy with this, which we would get all the time like from experienced wine drinkers being like, these pairings are so unexpected, mm -hmm. but they're not just, uh, they're not just uh, weird for weird's sake. Um, because they all started, and it's because they all started with a nugget of something that does make sense and then we'd spin off from there. Um, I tried to use vermouths a lot, I tried to use sakes a lot, I tried to use sparkling ciders a lot. Um, but it was the same idea though, it's like if this dish would work with a, this is clearly a champagne dish, well maybe I can find something like, I would use uh, Eric Bordelais um, ciders a lot because they drink, they're so beautiful and pure. Mm -hmm. um, I use a lot, a lot of sakes, but like again, sakes that were mostly focused on kind of like purity and freshness and cleanliness. Um, it's also kind of Justin's food demands that his food is very precise, um, and it doesn't want anything too kind of wacky getting in the way of it. Um, I, one of my favorite pairings that we used to do was a um, it was a foie dish um, with a basically a torchon. Um, with a uh, different fruit gelée on top, um, usually a black fruit, and then this uh, huckleberry muffin that was like a spiced muffin. And um, obviously, you know, you're like foie. Okay, what what are the foie pairings? You need you want something off dry, but not too sweet. Classically, you would say sauterne, although you could argue that modern sauterne is too sweet for foie, which is why most people don't actually want foie with sauterne. But um, the idea of being like, what can we find that has some sweetness, but that's going to make sense with you know this and the gelée and everything, and it ended up being a vermouth and soda pairing because vermouth itself had the balance, it had the the, the sugar balance and it had the spice balance to work with that muffin, but it um, it was too heavy on the palate and too sweet on the palate, and uh, we were actually using mineragua because the bubbles are really intense and it has um, sodium bicarbonate in it, and so it's um, salty, uh, and so the combination of that you'd get this like salty vermouthy thing that like matches the fruit, it matches the sweetness, it matches the spice, and then the bubbles from the vermouth and soda kind of cleanse your palate so you can keep on going back for more. And um, people loved that pairing because the idea of vermouth and foie was not, there's no real cultural <laughs> place for that ever. Mm -hmm. So, so I'm, I'm, as you're building this 
this program, or as you're, I guess, inheriting and building this program. Tell me about the, from the buying side, like what are you at that point looking for in, in wines you want to bring in? Obviously you have kind of, your, you, you have this experience with wines now all over the world and you have this great wealth of wines in Oregon. What does the list look like here and what are you seeking when you're adding wines to your, to your portfolio here? And are we talking about Castagna? Castagna here, yeah. Um, you know, the thing also with Castagna is I inherited a pretty big uh, cellar that had been uh, mostly curated by um, kind of, we'll say, first generation Castagna starting in 99. Um, for the first four or five years, and I'm kind of you know rounding the numbers here, they bought a lot of wine. And they cellared a lot of wine trying to think of Castagna as a place that could, in a kind of European tradition, have this big cellar and eventually have a bunch of mature wines that are ready for people to drink. Mm -hmm. um, I got lucky to come on right as the first wave of those wines were basically hitting perfect maturity. There was a bunch of early 90s Barbarescos and Barolos, um, mostly late 90s, early 2000s stuff, some Rhone stuff, a little, little tiny bit of Burgundy, but um, really, um, it was, it was great to just have access to all that stuff. So a lot of the list, um, and a lot of that stuff wasn't on the list yet because it had been stashed away. Mm -hmm. And um, before it, they would, pick, they would pick away one or two bottles at a time and put them on the list just so it wasn't overwhelming. Um, there was no psalm on the floor and a wine director on the floor. So mm -hmm. you can't just throw you know, 400 skews of, of old wines out there with no one to kind of navigate that. Mm -hmm. um, but one of my big projects after the first year, once I had kind of really got my bearings, was like, let's go to that cellar and let's, let's see what all this stuff is. Um, and what was great is because we had a tasting menu, we basically went through and opened a bottle or two of everything. Um, some of the things, we had, we had cases of old Prototori and we're like, well, we don't need cases of this. So for the next six months, everyone is gonna get old Prototori with a dish. We'll find a dish somewhere, <laughs> we'll build a dish for it. And so we drank, we drank great for a long time and it allowed all the staff um, to try all those wines and it allowed us to build out and flesh out this you know, much, much larger wine program than in, they'd had. Um, and for everyone to feel somewhat comfortable with what those wines are. Um, and that kind of made up the bulk of it. And outside of that, it would be fleshed out with a few classics and more affordable things that people would need. But we never built out a, the bottle list was never a huge focus just because we wanted people to do pairings. That's where my passion was at. I thought that was what is exciting, what really enhances the meal. Um, and so the list wasn't meant to be super comprehensive in a sense. We had all the old stuff because we had it and we had you know what you needed from like hitting the spots. A few burgundies at this point, a few white burgundies at this point, some Oregon stuff here and there. Um, but yeah. And then tell me about this, the place we're in now and, and, and its role in all of this. Yeah, so um, Justin had been at Castagna for probably eight years at that point. Um, I'd been there for maybe six or seven. And um, the cafe was here, um, it used to be Cafe Castagna. Me and him didn't really have much of a part in it. I did the, I did the list. Um, he technically was the executive chef of the whole building, but I mean, it wasn't his menu over here. He didn't work, neither of us worked over here. And the cafe um, had just kind of lived its life. It was, it, it had been 18, 17 years or whatever. And um, it just was time for it to be something new. And me and uh, Justin had been pushing Monique for a while to let us do something with this space. and. Um, and she, she wanted to do something new with it too. She realized that it was time for a, a shift. And so um, basically, yeah, the, 
time just kind of finally became right for it. And, and me and Justin had also become so comfortable working together next door. We felt like we were achieving, hitting some really high highs as far as operating that menu and service and pairings and food. And it was like, what, how can we, how can we touch more guests, basically? Because no matter what we do, you can still only do a certain amount of people next door. Sure. There are limitations on how many tasting menus. And in a way, I think we'd both been holed up over there for so long. Like, you know, we, we, we were part of the Portland food and wine community, but so few people had actually experienced what we do because the price for entry is so high. Um, and we wanted to just do something where we could see more people, touch more guests, share what we're doing uh, in a more casual way. And so, um, yeah, we basically, me and Justin partnered with Monique to take over this space and um, kind of execute some new concept of what this was going to be. We, um, we knew we wanted to be wine focused um, and casual, but like the concept kind of has, has shifted itself so much uh, since it opened um, that trying to think of what we even started with is, is <laughs> it was so loose. It was going to, we wanted it to be actually a wine bar, um, very much just like a place where people can hang out and drink wine and they'll be like, a solid menu of, of things, but not a dinner restaurant. Um, and But Portland will kind of grip you and turn you into what it wants you to be really quickly. Plus, the way the space got built out, we were really happy with it. We thought it looked really great. Um, it was a big upgrade, we thought, over the old cafe. Um, but it looked like a dinner restaurant. And so we kind of fought against that for about a year, trying to be like, no, we're a bar. And people would be like, you yeah, know, this isn't a bar. Like, this is clearly a restaurant. Um, and it really actually almost took us until COVID to really kind of be like, you know what, like we are like we are a restaurant, let's be even more of a restaurant type thing. But uh, nonetheless, the idea was, yeah, wine focused, big, big focus on wine. We knew I was gonna spend more time over here. This was gonna kind of be my baby as, mm -hmm. as Castagna was always kind of Justin's. Mm -hmm. um, focus on the fun side of wine, the irreverence, you know, the odds and ends of the world, the natural wine world, heavy, heavy focus on that. Um, and just trying to get more people in the door to drink wine and more people to experience wine and not be intimidated by it um, and to have a good time with it. So how does this wine list compare? What is, what is different about the wine over here? Um, so I mean we, well nowadays I actually have a chunk of the older Castagna wines on the list over here because for COVID we figured why not. But um, you know the list is broken down the bottle list into basically two sections saying wines on the wild side and wines of more classic profile. Um, everything on the list, every wine we work with follows my general parameters of, again, what I like to say is integrity-driven winemaking, small families, every now and then a co-op, if it's a really small, special co-op, I think we've worked with one or two, um, but generally small families, um, non-intervention, um, organic farming, you don't have to be certified. Um, I'm not gonna disqualify anything, anybody for anything. We, we actually have some, uh, we had a producer, I think it was earlier this year, where um, I bought the wines and they're working with a vineyard that they're in the process of converting to organics. And you're like, why would I disqualify you because you're in the process of getting there? You know, you're, you're in year two, three or whatever. And I think um, some of that gatekeeping in the natural wine world is ridiculous where you're like, no, we're not gonna, we're not gonna support you yet. Like, somehow financially figure out a way to do that and then we'll support you. I think it's ridiculous. And so, you know, so we'll work with people who are, of course, wineries that are in conversion. Uh, but the idea is again, like stewardship of your land and just intentionality with what you're trying to do. Um, and then we try to 
focus on the wines of the natural wine world that are that drink with uh, that aren't just flawed to uh, to the point where they're unrecognizable what they are. Um, and um, huge focus on Riesling, um, re German Riesling, dry German Riesling, especially one of my passions. Um, and we're lucky to have access to a lot of really small production rare stuff. And so um, we have an enormous German Riesling section. Um, and we sell a lot of it too. And, and we know I've tried to be kind of an evangelist for that grape, um, as has almost every wine director, I think, at some point. But I think we've really done a phenomenal job with it. I mean, the amount of Riesling that we move through this place and the amount of people who um, come back to drink dry Riesling um, has been amazing. And there's a big cultural shift that's happened. You know, when I started in wine, everyone thought Riesling was sweet, of course, every general consumer. And now the amount of people who come in and they're like, oh, I love dry Riesling. It's it's amazing how that shift has happened. I mean, it's kind of like the rosé shift that happened. You know, I'm sure you remember you know, again, seven, eight years, nine years ago, most people still thought they were like, oh, rosé, and then you're trying to convince everyone to drink dry rosé, and all of a sudden everyone wants rosé, and now everyone drinks rosé. Everyone drinks rosé. Um, I'm not saying that's happened with Riesling yet, but it's getting a lot closer um, than at any point I've ever seen, and, um, and it's amazing. It's great, because um, they're some of those beautiful, underappreciated wines in the world. Talked a couple times about the demystifying process, and obviously that's, I think, something that's a newer way of approaching your your type of position as some or wine director position. Tell me why it's important to you, and and some of the some of the sort of key you mentioned earlier, kind of some some of the parts. What, what are some of the key parts for you in terms of taking wine and bringing it down to a, a less mystical level? Yeah, um, I mean, you know, to go back to like the storytelling thing, I think is so important. It, um, when I was next door on the floor more, a lot of it would be about storytelling. That's kind of where my focus would be. So um, with the pairings next door, you know, I would come and see your table 10, 12 times. Um, and so you're on a journey with me, you know, you're on a journey with me and with the kitchen. And every time we come, the wine comes and it's, it's a story about this producer, this grape, why you should care. Um, what's interesting about it? You know, what I, I try to find the things that I think will be interesting to the average consumer. If someone knows wine, they're gonna have questions to ask, and they can ask them, and I'll have answers for them. But like, I'm not gonna go into it talking about how it's made usually, unless it's a really interesting way it's made. Um, again, just simplifying everything so that people can understand what they're drinking and why they should care about it. Um, Usually not talking about, when it was next door, I usually wouldn't talk about what it tasted like because I'm about to pour you a taste of it and I didn't need to influence it that much. Um, sometimes I talk about why I thought it was good with the dish, but um, it, was, it was mostly just, again, getting people excited about drinking it before you even pour it. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of the idea of, of, next, of over here, being like, how do I turn that into a, I can't do that with every guest over here like you can do with a tasting menu. We're like, how do we get that into a wine list somehow? so that people can look at a wine list and not just see a list of wines, they can have some way to navigate that without having to know anything. Because if you know a lot about wine, it doesn't matter if they're stories, because you might read the stories, but you probably don't need them, but you'll be able to figure out what the wine is because you know wine. But if you don't know anything about wine, you're reading through a list of words that's so hard oftentimes on wine lists. Um, and 
over time here, it, it's kind of spun into what it is now, where the list is basically every wine, every single glass bore has its own write-up, mm -hmm. which has gone from the idea next door, where it was next door telling real stories about the families, to now just like ridiculous anecdotes about anything. <laughs> I mean, it's it, they've gotten weirder and weirder, and the staff is part of it. It's it's. Uh, you know, with any staff at the time, we're always tasting together and talking about what this reminds us of, and and that's I think the the fun part. It's a fun part for the staff and for a guest when you know they're we're honest about being like this reminds me of like you know whatever it is you know like the fruit leathers like but the ones you get at like the high end like hippie stores and you're like yeah yeah it does it does like or it tastes like a cereal and we're trying to figure out what cereal like and, and we're not making it up we really do like oftentimes we're like that is exactly what we think it tastes like let's tell people that it's fun like um or we drink something and we're like god i wish i was drinking this like this is what i want to drink by the river and it's like hey well let's write that down but like make it dumber like you know and so it's just become like it's just become a basically like each write-up are like dumber jokes after dumber jokes um but you know trying to also make it somewhat helpful to either guide you to what it's going to taste like or at least just get you excited by being like this someone put enough time into this that i have to try this now um and i and i think part of the the whole point of that tongue-in-cheekness with the the jokes is that like a lot of people still think of wine as such a serious thing. Um, and uh, you read a joke like that, and a few of them, you're like, where am I? Like, this is clearly not being taken too seriously. Um, and I think that's good for people to, to realize that it doesn't have to be taken so seriously. It sort of sounds like you're sort of sounds like a similar concept to getting people, introduce people to a new kind of music. Like, obviously, with your music background, tell me about. We, we run into this a lot where there's a lot of musicians in the wine industry or, or wine professionals in the music industry or something like that. So tell me about the intersection for you and the kind of overlap between between your interests. Is, is, is it something you've noticed? You know, I've thought about it a lot. And I'm not sure like exactly quite how it like uh, I think I think with a lot of people, uh, you have a lot of creative people on all spectrums of it. A lot of people who, you know, a lot of people who get into wine, um, were didn't mean to get into it i guess is what i'm saying a lot of them were people who were again artists writers musicians whatever um waiting tables somewhere and all of a sudden the wine was the most interesting part because it is so intellectual and so artistic um and so you attract a certain kind of person i think uh, in the wine industry oftentimes um i do think it's changed a lot um in two ways um I think you know the rise of like actual sommelier culture with like the Somme movie and the Court of Masters attracted a lot of people who went into it as a buttoned-up profession, knowing that it was a buttoned-up profession from day one. And I think it uh, it professionalized it in a lot of ways, for better or worse. Um, it drew in a lot of people who who weren't the same people you were seeing in I think previous generation of of wine professionals. Um, and I, I'm no again value judgment I guess either way. But um, and this isn't referring at all to obviously all the problematic aspects to the court of master sommeliers itself. But um, yeah, and so I think just wine culture in general, and wine. So many winemakers have kind of a mystical, you know, artistic, spiritual side to them that I think is something that um, is very relatable to a lot of, again, artists, musicians, writers. Um, it's a, there is a sense of creating something, crafting something, um, in the same way you would with you know, music, art. Um, yeah. 
So in, the, in, in 2017, you uh, earned a sommelier of the year uh, recognition. Tell me about that, how that came about, and, and if that changed anything for you. Um, I mean, it was, those things are always so random, you know, because they never, it's not like an Academy Award where you like made a movie and like, you know, pitched and being like, give me the thing. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it was a totally, totally kind of random thing. I got a call one day from them and I was like, well, are you kidding me? Like, for what? <laughs> like, um, and at that point, Omens wasn't open. So it was based on the work I'd been doing at Castagna and based on that tasting menu. And, um, and from, you know, what we gathered from them, it, based on, the, it was about the approach as much as anything. This approach of like, how do you, um, take a tasting menu like that and, and give this experience where not only do the wines, are the wines working with the food, but you're giving uh, this journey as far as storytelling and everything. And also then, the other thing I didn't mention is I was always still trying to work with wines too that were kind of on the cutting edge. Um, trying to kind of, you know, think about who are these great producers that are underappreciated or who is this young producer who is everyone's going to, everyone needs to see these wines. Um, really trying to focus on the wine world as a whole and making sure that I'm not just pouring the same, there's nothing, this, I, I drink a lot of wines from these great established producers, but oftentimes with Nextdoor it was like, I have those on the bottle list. Um, you can find those at wine shops or whatever. You know, what's the producer you don't know yet that you should know? What's, you know, that's doing really interesting things, really beautiful things. Um, and so that was like kind of one of the third components of how you build that tasting menu. But um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was cool though, obviously. I mean, it felt like a, I knew I was doing things I had a, you know, kind of different way of interacting with wine and presenting it, especially in a, you know, a white tablecloth restaurant coming and pouring these weird things and weird pairings and going off on these stories. Um, and little things like that are nice along the way to know they're like, okay, um, I'm trying to make this more exciting for people and this is a validation that it's resonating with people. And that's, you know, what's more important was the idea that like, okay, people, people do like this. They like the effort I'm putting into, uh, to do this and they think it's worthwhile. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't, it didn't like change anything. The wine world's not like, I think, uh, you know, uh, there's not enough like celebrity culture around it or anything like that. Um, but again, it, it helped, it was good just for myself to be like, yeah, keep on, keep on doing what you're doing. Like, keep on doing what you're doing. Did it add any pressure? No, I don't think so really. It, although I guess, you know, I, I think I, I noticed it, um, not pressure, but I would notice like, um, and it still happens sometimes and I like kind of, I'm like, what? And then I'm like, oh yeah, where <laughs> someone will come and, and a guest will have read that or something. And in their head, what that means is that I have like some super palate that like must know everything. And I'm like, I'm just a person, like, I don't know. Um, and I have to kind of like, you know, or someone the other day, he, he's a regular, great regular and brought in some new friends and was like, oh, you know, okay, so this is the man here. This is Brent, the best palate in Portland. I'm like, da, 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 da. I, my palate's not even that good. Like, I'm a good talker, but like, they're much better, you know, and it's like, and so that part's funny because there's a, there is a, there is an assumption, I think, from people that like, oh, if you win an award like that, you must have all these things, which is like not true. It wasn't, the award wasn't about that. I didn't win a tasting competition. Mm -hmm. um, it's about, I think the energy and the passion that you bring to the profession, um, not just about you know how good your taste buds are. Arguably, more a more important thing to have, I would say, the energy and the passion, right? I think so. Yeah.
Um, I think so. Um, we've talked a couple times, obviously you mentioned COVID multiple times, obviously impacting your, your work. Tell me how it's impacted your work and, and uh, what kind of the pivots you've made to get through and what you sort of see going forward as we hopefully soon start coming out of this. Yeah, I mean, we have been so lucky on the Omen side of things. Um, we had a huge patio already. Um, and so we were able to, once it got nice, get the patio going. Um, we were able to get these tents set up when we needed to because we didn't have to worry about any kind of extra permitting with the city. And we've been busy, actually. Um, and so, I, I mean, I feel really lucky, all things considered. Um, we were able to turn this into our little kind of retail wine shop out here. Um, and, and some of the shifts that have been fun though is, you know, without Castagna open, um, me and Justin shifted over here completely because of course. And so, you know, he's, he's on the line four nights a week flipping burgers and making pastas for people after, you know, executing a, one of the highest level tasting menus in the, in the world for the last couple of years. And I am on the floor uh, waiting tables four nights a week now. I'll take, I'm out there with me and like a, it'll be a bartender back server. And so, you know, I'll do 40, 50 people taking orders um, and I love it. It's exhausting. Um, and, it, and it was hard at first because my brain isn't really, hasn't been trained like that. I mean, Working as a, as a captain or a wine director on a tasting menu floor is totally different. And then when we opened this, um, I opened it as you know, a, a partner and a wine director and as a GM. I wasn't waiting tables. I hadn't waited tables and like had to do that in a long time. Uh, um, and so it was like learning that old skill again of just like keeping up with it. But it but interacting with so many guests every night to sell wine again is amazing. And I think it's. It's kind of a blessing to be able to do that again because it's partly why you fall in love with it mm -hmm. at a certain point is you just love talking to people about wine and getting them excited about wine. And you start climbing up the ladder of your career and all of a sudden you stop doing that because mm -hmm. you're now in charge of teaching other people how to do that, which is rewarding in a, in a sense, but it's really, I'm really enjoying being out there again. And the, the little excitements that come when you, you're talking with someone's about a bottle and they pick something that you're like, yes, that's the one you're gonna love that. And you like, you pour for them and they love it and you're like, yes, we did this. Like, you know, it, it's nice to have those little moments of success. Like, I used to try to like live vicariously through my Omen staff. Like, I, I, I would be floating around. I mean, we're so small here that um, when we were fully functioning inside and I would be kind of a, you know, roaming manager, I'd spend a lot of time like in the bar, kind of uh, food running area. And anytime I saw like a bottle coming up, like, what'd you sell them? What'd you sell them? Like, what, what you got? Like, you know, I wanted to know like what the excitement was and whether they liked it and like <clears throat> how, you know. Um, and so I'm really having a, a fun time um, getting back to that. And, um, and I think we've built a lot of new regulars. We have a lot of regulars who they're excited to see me at that level and they'll sit down and they'll be like, all right, what are we drinking tonight? Like, just do the thing where, you know, just pay, bring us glasses whenever our glasses is empty for whatever we're eating. And I'm happy to do that and I love it. It's so much fun and it's, um, and it's nice to be able to interact with those, you know, those good regular guests like that because um, I don't think I got to do it enough in the first year and a half of being open because it was just so much between this and still running Castagna. And so I'm enjoying in some ways this simplified life. Pairing wines with burgers for, for example. Yep. Yeah. I am gonna shoot myself if I have to keep on waiting tables in the rain for much longer. That is the one thing that is just, it is exhausting. Like, you know, on the, on the nice, we've, we've had a really mild winter, luckily. 
Um, and on those days, it's great. It's fun. It's like, you know, it's going into service. Let's go. But those rainy days, you're just like, God, we got to do this again out here. Like, you know, like 45 people are coming in in the rain like this. And, you know, we're like hoods on, hoods off, and trying to protect the food with like trays. Or you're soaking wet, trying to set everything and break everything down. And you're just like, God, why are we outside? Like, this is crazy. But um, people are really happy to be able to come somewhere and get an experience and eat and drink good wine. Um, and after that second closure um, that Cape Brown did in November, a lot of places did not reopen at all. Um, and so there's like nowhere to go right now. I mean, there, there's a few places, but there's not a lot of places to go. And so um, we are seeing that and like how appreciative people are because they just, they want to go out, you know? What about as you look ahead, coming out of the pandemic? You know, we were I was talking about that the other day with uh, Monique. We were kind of like, what is the future? You know, things are actually running so smooth right now. I mean, uh, minus the external things that keep on happening. You know, the Cape Brown shutdown was ridiculous and horrible. Um, we had a COVID scare and we closed for a week because we were just like, we have to get everyone tested to make sure, um, you know, like every every month there was a smoke in September we actually it's so hard to get into a rhythm because um, you're continually um, being hit with external factors two big trees across two big 150 foot trees across the street they had to take down they had a Dutch elm disease they were going to fall down and kill everybody you know like and we had to close for a week because of that it's like there's always just been something um, which is you know that's what 2020 was but when we're in our rhythm, we're running so efficiently and it's so fun to just, again, be here, to have Justin there cooking. And, um, and so in a way I'm like, I am enjoying it while it's here because it can't last forever, it won't last forever. I mean, to be honest, like at this point in my life, I don't wanna take 50 guests a night. And like, I don't wanna do that long-term. Justin doesn't wanna cook on this line. Like, um, we have a whole nother restaurant that we haven't even opened or operated. So, you know, we do have to figure out something. And I, I don't know, I mean, I think, um, I'm excited, you know, I'm starting to look forward to it. I think, um, I don't wanna just open up Omens the same way it was though. I think it would feel like not like going backwards in a way, but like I don't want to go back to normal. Um, and so we were talking about, you know, when we reopen this on the inside, like we should, we should do some things, some redesigns, some, some just kind of, just something to like, I don't know, you almost get a free pass of like, you know, usually you don't shut down a interior of a restaurant for a year. Um, and there's a lot of things uh, aesthetically and stuff that we think could be nicer and could be more coherent with what with what the wine program is, with what the vibe is. And so I think that'll be, you know, for us a big thing here is, is making this a more welcoming, a warmer space, a more whatever, whatever we decided to be, like more coherent. Um, opening a restaurant for the first time and for almost anyone is you're slapping it all together because unless you're, you know, funded by a lot of money, it's way more expensive than you ever think it's gonna be and it's way harder and it takes way more time and whoever the people are always stretched thin and so all of a sudden you're trying to be like talk about design things and you're like design things i got a staff to we're opening into like i don't what are you talking about like and so i think um some things have to get put on the back burner and i think for us we like got it open got the staff right but we never really finished designing the mm -hmm. physical space um and we didn't have the vision really to design it so that it was in cahoots with what the menu was, what the food was, what the wine was. Um, 
and now there's such a clear identity to the food and the wine that I want to have this space reflect that more when I get it reopened. Um, so that, that's kind of something that's keeping me um, excited and interested. And then as for next door, who knows, you know. Um, the world of fine dining has shifted a lot. The world of Portland dining has shifted a lot. I mean, we've seen the closures with Beast and Holdfast and Nomad. And I mean, it's a, it's a tough time to be a tasting menu restaurant. And so we have a lot of soul searching to do next door to make sure that we're going to do something that's meaningful um, for us, but meaningful to the city of Portland. Um, again, we don't, I don't think we have any interest in just reopening and going back to normal. So then what about as you look ahead for the future for yourself? Is this something you want, is a place you want to be long term? Do you have other ambitions beyond this? Um, you know, that's a, another good question that I think um, any thoughts I had before COVID are kind of a race now and it's a reset of sense of, uh, in a sense. I think we're still focused so on, uh, you know, I think me, Justin and Monique still think that Omens isn't set up yet to be, we're still not the best we can be. So we're still working to, to make this better. Um, and so I think for us, we're like, first thing is get back to, you know, post-COVID as far as people being able to dine in and stuff. And then get Omen set up to a point where we're really happy with, with it in every aspect. Mm -hmm. And then move to next door and figure out what's the future of, of that? What's the future of a tasting menu mm -hmm. with me and Justin or with Justin and my part in that? And I mean, I imagine all of that to be a two, three year process of sorts. Um, I am um, starting a, a new wine business this year, actually, unrelated to these two. Um, I need to find a better way to describe it in less than uh, you know, a 10 minute ramble. But I mean, it's essentially like a, um, it's essentially like a negotiant wine project, um, a pseudo negotiant bulk wine project. Um, the idea is that you know on the front end of the project, using again demystification, branding, tasting notes, storytelling to help consumers pick out a wine, um, and on the back end, teaming with uh, winemakers to help kind of fill in the gaps that happen during production mm -hmm. and during harvest sometimes of, um, and collaborating with them to basically make wines that then we'll sell under our label um, with the tasting notes, the stories, whatever. Um, and so it is a collaborative project. Um, yeah, and the idea with like the winemakers being, for instance, you hear these stories all the time that happen of, of something like um, a winemaker wants, has this vineyard and they want to work with it, but it's farmed conventionally. And they're like, God, if I could only buy the whole vineyard, or sign a contract for the whole vineyard, I can get them to start converting the fruit to organic in over a couple of years. But they're like, A, I can't afford it. B, even if I could, I can't just double my production overnight. That's not smart. Um, and so the goal with what we're gonna try to do is by teaming up with a bunch of different winemakers in little spots every year, um, help fill in some of those gaps of being like, okay, you wanna, that's uh, something you're interested in, let's do it together. Together we can take all that fruit you make it all for me, mm -hmm. um, and you take what you want, and I'll take the rest. And um, you know, it'll be sold under our winery, which is called uh, it's called Post Familiar. And the idea is that for us, the selling will be it'll be a lot of direct to consumer stuff. We imagine is is uh, I have a partner in this who is not from the wine world, so his he's approaching it from a really different angle than most wine people would, which I'm appreciating because I'm learning a lot of more about the other world of design and marketing and everything. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, a product that 
should be more accessible to people because um, it's giving people what it should be. It's branded better. It's um, most wineries don't have the time to do that kind of thing. Um, and if every year we can piece together, you know, a few things like that. Um, Another great example, and this is a real life example, basically. Um, you, a producer is sometimes in there like, I want this whole vineyard because if I have the contract for the whole vineyard, then I can secure that contract for a few years. I don't have to worry about anyone else sniffing mm -hmm. in. Mm -hmm. But if I take the whole vineyard, then what am I gonna do with these two acres of like random grape that I don't really want? And I don't wanna add a new skew to my lineup, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, make that for me. Experiment with that for me and I will, you know, I'll take that off your hands and it's, um, and it's a co-marketing for both, you know, all the bottles we do on the back will say, you know, post familiar, you know, times, whatever the winery we're working with is. The website is gonna have, you know, full profiles on all the growers every year. Um, ideally with some of these growers would be able to like get some kind of longer term contracts on vineyards that again, they weren't able to take that whole contract themselves originally, but we're gonna help them do that. Um, and part of the idea is, um, this is getting kind of into the details, but, um, basically paying a winemaking fee um, during the process of it. And so one of the big problems that's small, this is, we're meant to work with tiny wineries too. This is kind of how I envision it, is help getting tiny wineries, helping them with some of this along the way. Um, and for them too, being able to be like, oh, I do want to work, I want to make this grape, I want to learn it, but I don't want to, I don't have the ability to sell it. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of these tiny wineries have cash flow, ca cash flow problems just based on the cycle of how winemaking works. Mm -hmm. And if we can help that a little bit by, during harvest, being like, okay, if you're gonna make three tons for us, we'll pay you a fee per ton, and we'll pay you cash right now, so that you can start paying your grape contracts immediately. We'll obviously pay for the grapes as well. Um, and so, again, the idea is really just, I have so many friends and so many people I know in this industry that are small winemakers who end up with a lot of these little problems like that and trying to see if we can kind of benefit everyone in this, I guess, this big picture. Um, yeah, or you know, another one would be you have certain wineries that end up being like, you know, we're gonna be Italian focused or something like that. We're only gonna work with Italian grapes. And at a certain point, you're kind of like, do you wanna work with? Do you want to make Cabernet just to see what you can do with it? Because if you do, we can team up and you can make a few acres and it'll be fun for you because as a winemaker, you probably want to. Mm -hmm. um, and you don't have to worry about how do you incorporate that mm -hmm. into your lineup mm -hmm. um, because it's just here and it's gone. Mm -hmm. um, so and, cool, cool idea. Yeah, I think I, I got it. Like I said, I got to figure out how to explain it a little bit more concisely. <laughs> but, um, you know, we have one wine coming out in spring. Um, the whole idea didn't come together till like right when harvest was happening. And so I talked to a lot of people who are really interested in in um, working with us, but the timing was like, we were just right up against harvest. Um, so we have one wine, maybe two, coming out in spring. Um, and then we'll try to get some people signed up for next year and hopefully have a, a, you know, a little bit larger lineup of stuff for next year. Um, and if anything, you know, it's something, it's something fun for me to do and a way for me to get to learn a little bit more about how that side of the wine world works. Mm -hmm. Talking about, you know, vineyards and seeing vineyards and it forces me to get out and help with harvest more because I say I'm going to do more every year, but then I'm always like, ah. Uh. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, speaking of the, of the production side, I'm, I'm curious about 
obviously your, your program has never been Oregon wine focused specifically, but you've always had Oregon wine as part of it. I'm curious about sort of your, your impressions of Oregon wine, first impressions of Oregon wine when, when you got here and sort of learning the industry and what the industry looks like now to you as, as in 20, 2021 now. Yeah, I mean, it, God, it's changed so much, which is crazy. Uh, and yeah, you know, there's a big tie in, of course, to like the natural wine movement with that. But um, I immediately loved Oregon wines, and then coming up here, I was drawn to them immediately. The ability to go out and um, uh, taste was huge, and uh, especially, again, being when I was young, it's, um, you can taste a lot of wines by going out, and if you're excited and you're kind of like, I'm, I'm starting to work in the wine industry, I work at this wine shop or whatever, you know, a lot of wineries, they wouldn't charge you for tasting fee and they'd pour extra things for you. And so one of the best ways for me to learn was to actually go out and I would just go see anybody and everybody I could. Um, and I, yeah, I loved Oregon wine from the start. Um, I would have never thought it was gonna end up where it is now. I mean, I, I think it's just, it is such an exciting, uh, place right now um, and Portland is so exciting because of it too I mean it's one of the only places where you can have a wine industry that is so close to a city center and so you the way that you can have winemakers just living in the city and part of the fabric of your community um, but they're but they can still you know go out and, and do what they're gonna do um, I think like the rise of the Columbia Gorge has been uh, nothing short of profound, um, and it's it's still so untapped. I mean, the potential is, is there. I think a lot of what I'm going to be doing for my project is working with producers exploring the gorge, um, because that's where a lot of the excitement is at. Um, and just like the amount of experimentation being done by younger producers, and again, I attribute a lot of that to its proximity to the city. You can be a younger producer, uh, you can be a creative type uh, artist working at a wine shop who decides to start interning out in a wine country and then eventually start making your own wine and like um, and so I think that kind of Portland creativity is you know bled into the wine industry and um, there's so many small projects all the time doing really 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 exciting things um, yeah and it's just uh, and the quality of wines keep on getting better and better. And I think there is a, I appreciate a lot that there is a general ethos in this region of uh, working naturally, but again, not working, not intentionally creating and putting out flawed wines. Mm -hmm. Most of the great, we'll talk, if we talk about the, you know, the, the, the great, the top natural winemakers um, in Portland, for the most part, the wines are, again, they're detailed, beautiful, and they're wild, but they're not flawed to the point of, again, non-recognition. Um, and, um, and I think it's partly what makes it so exciting to drink wine here is that everyone's kind of on board with that, you know? Um, and everyone makes mistakes here and there, sure. But uh, generally, people aren't trying to peddle these flawed wines being like, isn't it great? And you're like, no. Um, so. What about for the future of the Oregon wine industry? You say you're surprised to see where it is now, even just this, this many years into your journey, kind of journey here. What do you see as you look ahead for the next five or 10 years? I don't know. You know, I worry, as I think a lot of people do, about um, the infiltration of, uh, of some of the major players. But in some ways, it's inevitable. Um, William Valley Pinot 
for all of the heights it can reach is like becoming a corporatized wine and it will continue to be so. And it will just mean that the producers who are working with integrity need to kind of like, you know, plant their foot down even harder and be like, no, we're different. Uh, it's gonna be harder for them because in a global marketplace, they're gonna get confused with um, larger, less integrity driven brands. Um, but their wines are still always gonna be better. And so, um, so while that's happening in the Valley, I think you're gonna have a lot of the younger producers and experimental producer, producers working up in the Gorge and working in Southern Oregon and that kind of being the bastion of like the next wave because I mean there's a lot more to play with up there for one. B, you have a lot higher elevations and as temperature gets warmer, things like Underwood Mountain, things like the, you know, parts of the gorge just make a lot of sense. Um, and there's just, you can get fruit up there for a lot more affordable than you can in the valley and it's just gonna get worse and worse as these big players come in. Um, and I, yeah, not to sound like, you know, sad about it, there's a lot of, there's always gonna be great things happening in the Valley still, for sure. But I mean, I, um, it's part of the growing stages, I guess, you know, of Oregon wine really growing up is that um, you get those big boys coming in um, for better or worse, but uh, yeah. Are there any, any, any varietals or things that you're excited about looking for, things that are just starting to make a, a dent now or that you can see making a dent in, in Oregon in the next decade? Um, I mean, I think we'll continue to see the rise of Oregon Chardonnay. Um, I mean, what people like Ken and Eric have been able to do is like, it, it, it just stunningly profound. I mean, I put, they know how, that I'm a huge champion for their wines and any chance I get, I put those wines in blind tastings and they always, always stand up to everything in the, especially when they're in white burgundy tastings and oftentimes they show amongst the top wines. I mean, they're stunning wines. Um, and, and same thing with like so like the lingua francas of the world or uh, Seth Morgan Long is making stunning Chardonnay. Crowley has been making great Chardonnay for a while. I mean, there's, there's tons of them. Um, and so I think Oregon Chardonnay is going to continue to, uh, to rise. Um, you know, there's just so much happening in the gorge that it's like, is, I don't know if any one varietal will ever need to um, establish itself. I think there's gonna be space for everything to kind of exist all the time. And you know, in some ways, I think you, what you see, what I see with the younger generation of consumers is they don't care as much because they don't have as many um, prejudices or uh, uh, presumptions about what a grape should be because the natural wine world kind of flipped that all on its head anyways. And so in a way, I just don't think it matters as much. You don't hear that as much from younger producers being like, well, I don't know how I'm gonna sell you know, this weird grape. They're like, it doesn't matter. Like, uh, we'll sell it. Like, if it's good, we'll sell it. Um, and I think there's also just something exciting about that. I mean, I don't know why we feel the need in a new world region to focus on one grape. It seems so silly. Um, and you're gonna, you're gonna end up with problems because of climate change. You focus on one grape too much, and then, I mean, you, you see that in, in the Willamette Valley, there's a lot of sites that have gotten hotter and hotter and hotter. Um, I mean, you're going to see it in France too, sites that like were once considered great sites that were like, it's just too damn hot there now. Like, um, and so I hope that actually the Gorge continues to just do what it's doing and throw everything against a wall and let people experiment and have fun with stuff. And good producers are going to make great wines all the time. So. Right. Last question for you. Um, what do you believe the role of wine is in society? 
I think wine is a really good way to help people understand the importance of small-scale agriculture. It's one of the things that I want to try to get people to focus on a little bit with this new project we're doing too, is that like, if you can hook people with branding and with labels and with all this stuff, you might be able to get them to read the stories on the website then that, that mention that a lot of what this project wants to do, a lot of what these wineries do is to try to think about you know, land use, um, try to think about sustainability. Um, wine you know, is an agricultural product. Um, and I think you can get people to make those connections by telling them those stories. And, and when they go out and see producers at these, you know, especially the, we'll say the modern small producer, and they're going out to see a producer who doesn't even have a tasting room, and the producer's just showing them vineyards, people are like, this is crazy. Like, you know, you get away from the glitz and the pop and circumstance of like, you know, we'll say the stereotypical Napa tasting room or whatever. Um, people really, I think, get a chance to see that this is connected to land and that, um, and uh, yeah, I think that's really important. You go to somewhere like Hayu, Jesus, and you see what they're doing out there, and you're like, this is amazing. Like, um, and I think a lot of people who usually spend the kind of money that they would spend on a Hayu wine don't realize that that connection exists until they go out there. Mm -hmm. um, so, mm -hmm. yeah. Absolutely. All right. All the, all the questions that I have for you, is there anything we didn't cover that we should have? Anything I didn't ask? Uh, I, I think I think that's everything. <laughs> everything and more. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time today, for your stories, for your perspectives as well. And we're going to go ahead and let you off the hook. Cool. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. Special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have assisted on our oral history interviews. <laughs>